Christ, I'm Blevins, and I'm going to read the scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Philippians 4.4. 4. Amen. Nice work, Grayson. This is a kid's takeover around here. That's the way I like it. That's what I'm talking about. So, hey, good morning. My name is Dallas. If I haven't met you, I really would love the opportunity to meet you after the service and get to know you just a little bit better. Let me tell you where we're at. We're, we talked about um, peace last week and hope the week before, and this week we're going to talk about joy. Now, I should tell you from the jump, I'm really hoping that my voice survives. So, I may be a little bit more subdued than normal today, although I may also just find the strength to get after it. So, uh, good morning. Welcome to Grace Meadows Church. We're so glad you're here. There's lots of places that we could go with this word joy. In fact, there was really four different messages I was trying to consider this week. Which way do we go? Which way do we go? But that's such a staggering statement from Paul in Philippians 4.4, what Grayson just read, isn't it? I mean, always rejoice. Always? Really, Paul? I mean, how is that possible? I mean, you could understand if he said, try to rejoice as much as possible. You know, as long as the circumstances warrant it, rejoice. Or even in those circumstances, try your best to rejoice. He says, no, 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 rejoice always. How could he say that? What about those who have lost loved ones recently? What about those who are going through traumas and unspeakable abuses? Isn't it even naive of Paul to say that? Isn't it dismissive for Paul to say rejoice always? I mean, how in the darkest times can you do that? Well, keep in mind, Paul's not exactly writing this from the Plaza Hotel. He's not sipping lattes and on a beach somewhere saying, man, the world is so good. This is awesome. He's in jail. And not only is he in jail, but He knows for sure that within two years max, he is going to be executed. And he says, rejoice always. Again, just in case you missed it, he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. So how can he say that? Well, to understand that, we need to get into what the word joy actually means. If you go back to the Greek, essentially joy means gladness that comes through the reality of grace. Grace and joy are linked throughout the scriptures, time and time again. Grace and joy. Joy is a consequence or a, uh, an outcome of the focus of the reality of grace. And I think a lot of times people miss it when they talk about the, the differences between happiness and joy. I think we miss it because what people will say is they'll say, you know, happiness is rooted in circumstance and joy is transcendent of circumstance. And I think I understand what people are saying when they say that, but that's not quite right. Because joy is actually rooted in our circumstance. That we have an ultimate reality that is present right here with the coming of Jesus. And so we can rejoice always. Why? Because there is an ultimate reality of His grace in our lives in this very moment that is transcendent of any other reality. That's the point here. And so when He says... Things like in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, I sorrow and I rejoice. Both. Why? Because there's a reality of sorrow. Man, there are realities in which 
we should sorrow. There are realities that are painful, and we should sorrow. But there's also another reality present here. That's his whole point here. You have the reality of the situation that causes sorrow, but you also have the reality, the ultimate reality, of his grace in our lives. So we can always rejoice in that reality. It doesn't mean that we have to rejoice because of the specific reality that we're sorrowing over. But it does mean that we can rejoice because that's not the only reality present. There is the ultimate reality of His grace in our lives. And that's so important for us to recognize. Everyone here comes in with different realities present. And maybe they are happy realities. That's great. And maybe there are painful realities But your ultimate reality in Christ doesn't change. Your ultimate reality is forgiven, reconciled. God with us is your reality. Life forever in the name of Jesus is your reality in Christ. And nothing and no one can ever take that away. The world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. And so temporary circumstances of sorrow and pain, man, I am not going to be dismissive of those things this morning. And it is good and right to mourn and have sorrow, but it's also good and right to recognize the ultimate reality that is still present even in those moments. And that's why Paul says we can rejoice always. Why? Because God has made his entrance into the world and he is not going anywhere. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. Luke chapter 2, we touched on this last week just a little bit. The angel encounters the shepherds. And the angel says this, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now, what is that good news? Verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. That right there, that's the ultimate reality. That there's a Savior that has come into the world. That's the reality. That's why he says there's good news that will cause great joy. Because there's an ultimate reality present with him here. And by the way, it's not that we focus on that joy part. That's critical. We focus on that good news part. Because that's the thing that causes the great joy. How often do you see in the world today where people are just seeking after joy? Joy is the end game, right? But what the angel's saying here is that we we focus on the ultimate reality that's present... And as a consequence, joy comes. That's crucial for us to understand that. The focus is on the reality, not focusing on trying to obtain joy. And when we focus on the reality of His grace, that's what causes the joy. And that's critical for us to realize. Man, praise God that there is an ultimate reality transcendent of any other reality that we face. Because God has made His entrance into the world. We can always rejoice. Now, the question is, just because we can always rejoice, it doesn't mean that we do always rejoice. So the question really is, how could we set ourselves up in position to always rejoice no matter what comes? Um, This week, I heard a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in the 1930s and 40s and this dude loved Jesus, man. He was, he was fierce. He loved, loved Jesus. And he was vehemently 
and vocally opposed to the Nazi regime. And he made no apologies about it. He'd go on the radio and he'd be like, the way you treat Jews is just flat wrong. And when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, he had a position within the German government. But he used that position as kind of like a double agent of sorts. So what he would do is he would uh, get Jews stealth passports into other countries to save them from persecution. And the Nazis finally catch on to this and they say, look, we've had enough of this dude. And in 1945, they send him to an extermination camp. And somebody puts, uh, somebody quotes, somebody has a quote about what he was like in that extermination camp. This is, uh, I think his name, I don't know, I don't remember the dude's name. You can ask me at the service. He said, uh, he said, Bonhoeffer was different. He was just quite calm and normal, seemingly perfectly at ease. His soul really shone in the dark desperation of our prison. He was one of the very few men I've ever met to whom God was real and ever close to him. Now, I see that and I thought, what an amazing story. I mean, to be there facing your death and to be able to experience joy, that's amazing. But I was still left with that question, how, how is he able to do that in that moment? Well, somebody else was interviewed about his time there at the extermination camp, and they said that he was always kneeling and praying. And I, that's when it hit me, man. That's when it hit me. I, I started to look at all the stories in, in the New and Old Testament where people just humbly come before God and ask for his grace. And when they see that he is present with them, that's what produces the joy. So our role in it is that act of humility of saying, God, I need your grace. I mean, I actually really do need you. By the way, that word grace just means God doing for us anything that we couldn't do on our own. The idea that, that we do desperately need him in our lives. And so what Bonhoeffer realized, he said, man, I, I cannot endure this situation on my own. So I humbly come before God and ask for his grace in this moment to meet me in this space, which then produced joy. It's humility, it's experiencing the grace when he does meet you in that space, which produces joy in our lives. These things are so connected throughout the scriptures. Humility, grace, and joy. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humility before God, our understanding our, our need for him, and saying, God, I, I'm ready to receive your grace in this moment. I'm ready to see, receive your intervention in this moment. And then identifying, you know what, we, we prayed for him to intervene. We prayed for that. And yet here he is right now. And I identify that reality, that ultimate reality. And now I can experience joy. It's humility. It's grace. And it's joy. Essentially, the song we're going to sing at the very end here in a few minutes called Trusting God, it gets it exactly right. It says, I sought the Lord. That's the humility. That's the, the I can't do this on my own mentality. And then it says, and he heard, and he answered. That's the grace. That's him meeting us in, a, in our space where we couldn't do it, and we asked for him to intervene in that situation. That's the grace. 
I sought the Lord, and He heard, and He answered. And that's what causes joy in our lives. Man, do you ever just, do you ever just plead with God? Do you ever just say, God, I, I'm in such a humble position right now. I mean, I just, I, I know that I just can't get it right. I mean, I know that, that, that I, I'm falling short and that it's just, I can't get it done. And Him meet you in that space. Man, that causes great joy, does it not? Remember the Magi in Matthew 2. Man, it's pretty amazing to me, by the way, that the Magi had so much humility. I mean, these dudes were legendary figures of their time. I mean, worldwide. I mean, in the known world, man, they looked up to the Magi. They had money. Their pockets weren't empty, man. They were, they were legends. People looked up to them so, so much. And yet... They have the humility to go and seek after this baby king. And then in verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's them seeking after Jesus and then experiencing a glimpse of the grace of him to come into the world. And then they just have exceeding, exceeding joy. Verse 11, And on coming to the house... They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. That's humility. Every excuse for people to say, to, to puff them up a little bit. You know, man, I'm really doing something here. And yet some translations say they, they just fall to their knees. I mean, they just, they see this Jesus and they're filled with such humility and they, they recognize, they experience this ultimate reality of his grace right in front of them and, and just, and they just fall to their knees. I mean, they just can't help it because they have this posture of humility before God. And the question really is, man, when's the last time, when's the last time you just had to fall on your knees before God? I mean, I I know that that can get into like a legalistic territory, and I don't want to go there. But but if you never find yourself in an absolute, fully humble position before God, it could also be, not because we're not wanting to give into legalism, it could also be because we view ourselves a little bit higher than we ought to. I mean, these magi, I mean, look, there's people I really esteem and revere in this room. But compared to the Magi, I mean, these dudes had clout. And yet, they see this toddler king, and they just fall to their knees. They just fall to their knees. And the Bible says they experience exceeding joy in the process. Perhaps, if we're here today and we're not experiencing any joy, maybe it's because we've elevated ourselves too highly not to just come before him. In that way. Um, let's talk about Herod. We talk about the Magi. We talk about Herod. Herod, on the other hand, wasn't exactly humble before the Lord. In fact, pride really ruined his life, did it not? I mean, in fact, there's stories you can look at where, you know, he starts exiling his wives, but then that's not quite enough. So then he just starts killing them. And at one point, you know, he's very gracious. He says, oh, I regretted killing this one wife. It's like, oh, that's nice, right? But then his son, man, people start saying, wow, his son's going to be even better king than he is. So he kills that one. And then he hears about this baby king, and what does he do? He slaughters all 
those babies because pride and power and control dominated his life. And so one place you would never find Herod would be on his knees. I mean, you would never find him just humbly coming before God. And that's the difference here we're talking about. And I know that that's an extreme example. But isn't it true that, that if there's a little bit of pride in our lives, it can really prevent us from, one, humbly coming before the Lord, and two, experiencing the ultimate reality of His grace, which then allows us not to experience the joy that comes from that. The point here is, we've got to be just like the Magi, man. We've got to lower ourselves like the Magi and not raise ourselves like King Herod. And that's when we can experience joy. I I would be willing to bet that Herod never experienced true, genuine joy. I mean, maybe maybe pleasure for a moment when he got his way, maybe a short-lived pleasure, but never a macro-level, long-term joy. Why? Because he could never just get over the pride of needing to have things his way, of needing to have power and control, and consequently led to his discontentment. And not just discontentment, but despondence, anger, frustration, controlled his life. So, let's just contrast these two. David, if you throw that last one on the slide. Herod's route was pride leading to a need for power, leading to despondence, or like I said, anger, frustration, all these things. But the Magi's route, and I hope our route, is humility. Being able to come before God in in worship and just fully humble saying, we need your grace. We need you to be active in our lives, which leads to experiencing that grace, which leads us into joy. And that's really the question here today that we have. Do you find yourself experiencing joy? And if not, maybe we just need to humbly come before him. Man, I, I can't even tell you. I mean, just for these dudes to fall to their knees in worship of this toddler. That's humility. And maybe for us today, we can rejoice always if we're willing to just humble ourselves before him and experience that ultimate reality that he does provide to us. And that is what Paul means in Philippians 4.4. Now, as we close our time, let's continue in Luke chapter 2, verse 12. The angel comes to the shepherds and says, hey, there's good news. There's great joy. It's available to you in And in the town of David, there's a Savior and a Lord who's been born to you. And it says this. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now before this, it says there was no room at the inn. And so they had to go into a barn, essentially, to have Jesus. And we like to think about the manger. Like it's pretty, you know, you get... You get mangers at Hobby Lobby, and they're really cool, you know, and stuff. And I, I'm not dogging it, because I, one, I, I like Hobby Lobby, first of all. I mean, I'll just throw that out there. If I, if I lose man points for that, I don't care. It's, I like that place. But, man, the manger was messy, was it not? I mean, we're talking about a feeding trough here. And yet, the reason it's beautiful now is because Christ dwelled in there. That's the only reason. And so what happened is, we're talking about strips of cloth here. A lot, of, a lot of translations say swaddled, man. Isn't that a cute picture? 
swaddled and lying in a manger. Isn't that just nice and pretty? But that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're really talking about is strips of cloth. Strips of cloth lying in a feeding trough. That's, translators missed an opportunity with that one, didn't they? They should have gone that route. But what we're talking about is not like a blanket that you swaddle a kid with. We're talking about really burial cloths here. Because what would happen is Jews, when they would have a long journey, they would pack these strips of, of linen cloth because they weren't allowed to touch somebody who might be dead on the road. So instead they would wrap them with the, that strips of burial cloth so that they could then pick them up and take them on their way. And so what we're talking about here, essentially, is Jesus, as soon as he's born, wears burial cloth. As if to say, Jesus was born to die on our behalf. Jesus went to the extermination camp voluntarily on our behalf. So that... He could defeat the power of sin and death, and we could be raised into new life and victory for all time so that we could rejoice always. You know, I don't know how you come in this morning, and and there are some powerful, powerful things going on in our lives. But there is no reality greater than that resurrection power reality. And so, during this time, man, if you've ever sought the Lord and he has heard you and he's answered man let him know during this time of worship because we have such a good God I told you guys about my panic story I won't go too badly into it but man I, I saw him side by side with the worst moment of my life and I said yeah yeah he's greater I mean this is hard and it's painful and I'm on my face a lot of times and yet I see Jesus in the moment as greater and I pray that that doesn't come back again man I pray it doesn't but if it does I know how the hierarchy goes I know that he is greater and I think that's what James means by the way in James chapter 1, when he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that your faith will be more complete, not lacking anything. He's saying, when you see those trials side by side with a holy, resurrected God, you'll know who's greater in that moment. And then, when the next trial comes, your faith will be more complete and less lacking because you don't have to fear that thing because you've seen it side by side with a holy God, and He is always greater. And I don't know how you come in, but like I said, just know he's greater. There's always, always an ultimate reality that we can rejoice in. So let's do that here together. Let's pray. Father, man, I pray if there's any doubt in this room, I pray that you'll just snuff it out. I pray that you'll remind us once again how great you are. Because you are great. And joy has come into the world. And as we focus in that ultimate reality of your grace, that we realize, yeah, yeah, we can rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And Father, if there is a lack of humility getting in the way for us to be able to do that, I pray 
Holy Spirit, provide that conviction right now in this moment so that we can begin to live in freedom in that truth, in that reality. Love you very much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you've ever sought the Lord and He's heard and He's answered, let Him know during this time of worship.